We've solved the case, so let's talk Glass Onion spoilers. This is Scott's F Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking about uh, Glass Onion in more detail, kind of the spoilerific uh, review version. And yeah, because this movie has a lot that's very interesting to talk about and see and all of that. Um, but it's also one that is better to talk about once you know everything that's going on. So I thought it necessitated a second episode so I can dive into the spoilers and why and all twists and why I think they work as well as they do. So without further ado, let's get started. Well, Glass Onion is a ton of fun, isn't it? And it's the talk of the internet at the same time, thanks in part to perfectly lining up with a certain billionaire's boneheaded actions, a right-wing pundit putting his foot in his, his foot in it because he doesn't know how genres work, and a wealth welcome takedown of how the wealthy use their money to bend the world to their will. It's also a movie that requires some spoiler-filled discussion to truly dive into what the movie is all about, how effective it is, and how, at least in my opinion, it may be a stronger movie thematically than Knives Out. So today I'm going to go through a number of the big plot twists and reveals and why they work as well as they do. So, spoiler number one, Andy isn't Andy. After Knives Out, offbeat approach to the genre, aka it essentially switches back and forth between genres, I was looking for the twist on the whodunit approach this time around. And it took a dead Dave Bautista and a supposedly dead Janelle Monet before the movie finally revealed its fun new take on the genre. The new take? The real mystery isn't who killed Duke, or who is trying to kill Miles, it's who killed Andy. As we find out via an extended flashback, Andy was killed in a staged suicide a few days prior, which led her twin sister Helen to seek out Benoit Blanc for his help. Both intrigued by the mystery and moved by Helen's story, Blanc and Helen agree to have Helen pose as her sister and have them both arrive at the murder mystery party to probe the guests and determine who had motive and opportunity. There's a lot of reasons I like this, namely that it puts the entire movie in a different light, because while we think we've been playing Miles Braun's game, the guests and Braun have actually been playing Blanc and Helen's game. It also means moments like Helen tightly gripping the guardrail on the boat make sense, and gives the audience a faked but still effective reason why Blanc is crying after Helen is shot. As far as the audience knows, both Brand sisters have been killed by the same person. Likewise, the flashbacks where a hard kombucha drunk Helen and Blanc piece together everyone's motive and opportunity are hilarious fun. Spoiler number two is that Helen isn't dead. Thankfully for my heart and soul, Helen is not killed by a shot from Duke's stolen gun. While she is briefly taken down in the midst of her conference with Blanc, the bullet is stopped by Helen's sleuthing notebook complete with Andy's initials on uh, Helen's sleuthing notebook complete with Andy's initials on the front, almost like the memory of Andy is protecting her. However, Blanc and Helen decide to play like Helen is dead and use hot sauce as blood, and in my favorite bit, Blanc uses it to bring out tears so he can distract the guests, giving his I solved the case monologue as Helen looks for the note that proves Andy is the originator of all of Miles Braun's genius ideas. Again, a lot of reasons to like this. Structurally, it means that the movie is still one step ahead of the audience, because the natural assumption is that Helen is actually dead, and that's why Blanc is crying. Likewise, it also means that Janelle Monet gets to stick around and be an integral part of the finale, which is very, very necessary considering how things end. 
Though an underrated element is that Helen isn't punished or off for being curious or trying to take down the killer, whom we will talk about in a second. And in a quietly poetic moment, it's a representation of her sister that saves her life and gives her a chance at revenge and justice. Spoiler number three is that Miles Braun is the killer, both times. Miles Braun being the killer shouldn't be a surprise. He's already demonstrated time and again how big his ego is and how he's use willing to use his wealth and influence to control the people around him. Granted, the movie does an awful lot to distract the audience from his obvious motives and guilt. The murder mystery party is framed as solving Braun's murder, so we're already wondering who would do this for real. And the majority of the first and second acts involve Blanc tracking down motives for all of Braun's guests. But the roadblock Helen and Blanc run into is that while all the other guests have motives and opportunities, they also need Braun. Braun is or has been propping up their adventures and images for years, and it's easy to see it crashing down if Braun goes down. Which brings us to the film's title and the first part of Blanc's monologue, The Glass Onion. As described by Blanc, a glass onion is something that appears complicated and mysterious, but is actually very simple. In fact, the answer is staring you right in the face. However, you might be ignoring it because it seems too obvious. Not only is this classic Sherlock Holmes stuff, but it's also a nice throwback and reminder that Blanc himself threw out the idea of Braun being the killer, because if he had any smarts, Braun would get someone else to do it. Which brings us to the second and most important takeaway, Braun is dumb. Staggeringly dumb. He's an egotistical idiot who spouts nonsense philosophy and people eat it up either because he's propped up because he's propped up by other people's ideas, aka Andy's, or no one wants to call him on it because they are reliant on his money. His puzzles are solved in seconds by smart people and he didn't even create them. And he even steals dumb ideas to pass off as his own to commit murders. It makes all of the details that make his villainy obvious, aka him dressing like Tom Cruise's character from Magnolia in a flashback, almost embarrassing to an audience who didn't piece it together earlier. It also means that the people who prop him up aren't very smart either, because they've either ignored all the signs that this man is an idiot, or they've allowed themselves to be directly tied to his fortunes. Like sure, Leslie Odom Jr. scientists may know science and have a doctorate, but you can't and shouldn't justify late night nonsense faxes from anyone let alone a guy this dumb. This is a message that, at least in my mind, is universal, especially in American society. One of the most insidious elements of a capitalist society is that there's an underlying presumption that the people at the top earned their way there through skill and merit, when almost every example of a gargantuan business venture in America is littered with immoral and illegal behavior often paired with generational wealth that has been in place for centuries. Of course, this message hits even harder now as Elon Musk, who five years ago was treated like the smartest man in the universe, has recently shown his whole dumb ass to the world within a few months of his behavior as the owner of Twitter. Essentially, Rian Johnson called his shot years ago, and it landed just when his movie came out, and that's awesome. And spoiler number four, how Helen gets justice. Normally in a murder mystery, after the detective reveals who the killer is, the killer makes a point of confessing and there's either a police officer on hand to take them away or somebody ends up killing them. In Knives Out, the killer only confesses after Marta tells a lie to push him over the edge and the police have been recording the whole interaction. But if Braun has any smarts whatsoever, they are dedicated to self-preservation. Because when Helen arrives with evidence that Braun has been lying for years, a napkin with the business plan he ran with, he takes a blowtorch lighter to it and asks what physical evidence Blanc has. And Blanc admits, without the piece of paper, he doesn't have any, and he can't code the police with that. 
even if it is right. Not only that, but all the guests dependent on Braun refuse to back Helen up. But Blanc does hand Helen the means to get justice. In quick succession, Helen begins breaking all of the expensive art in the main living area, and just when everyone else has joined in, she takes the highly volatile fuel cell that's been running the compound and that Blanc, hand, Blanc handed her, and literally blows it all up. And just when everything is on fire, Helen goes for the killing blow, and Bull rushes the failsafe switch Braun installed so he could see the Mona Lisa without protection whenever he wanted, and lets the painting burn. As she puts it later, your fuel of the f future just burned up the world's most famous painting, you dumbass. And there's no way his ego or image can recover from that. So much that even his cronies are now willing to lie against him. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a think piece about why Helen didn't have to destroy the Mona Lisa or whatever in the near future. Two things about that, though. First, it's a fake scenario, so grow up. But most importantly, is that painting worth more than justice for two murders? And if so, why? Helen didn't hesitate, and the question we should be asking isn't why she did it, it's why we wouldn't. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.